0: What do live chickens, cursed dolls, and love potions have in common? These are a few of the iconic facets of an ancient religion passed through the centuries. Hidden among the whiskey-scented streets of New Orleans, survives a tradition that can be traced back to the first slaves in the southern United States. It's a religion that's both terrifying and fascinating. It covers over a century of suppression and has become synonymous with evil itself. There are plenty of stories about voodoo, but where does the fiction end and the truth begin? I'm Scott Parrish and this is Dying to Eat, the podcast that looks at the connection between food and death. What you should know is I've already lied to you. If you have ever been to the French Quarter in New Orleans, there's so many fun and interesting things about it. The smell isn't one of whiskey. Let's say it's more a mix of stale beer and those that couldn't uh, hold their whiskey. So come with me as we explore this little corner of the world as well as the state it resides. Stay around to the end and we'll see what's cooking this week. The state of Louisiana may be known for festivals and delicious Cajun food. What you may not know, it is also the home of the oldest mound complex in North America and the second tallest pre-Columbian mound in North America. Watson Break in Oshita Parish is older than Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids. Troyville Earthworks was the second tallest behind Monk's Mound in Illinois at 82 feet or 25 meters and Catahoula Parish. Sadly, it was destroyed in 1931 during Roadwork Project. These mounds are some of the oldest man-made structures on the continent. Basically, they're hills with built-in staircases. Sometimes they're used for religious ceremonies. Other times, they're crypts for homes of the elite. Most of the natives in the area, now known as Louisiana, settled along the Mississippi River. It was where Spanish explorers led by Panfilo de Navarez, came in contact with the natives back in 1528. Back then, the main draw for explorers to the New World was the possibility of finding gold and other treasures. This wasn't what they found in this river valley, so early explorers quickly lost interest. Louisiana largely stayed untouched by European influence until the 17th century. The next group of Europeans were the French. They decided the natives needed some water and the French were determined to bring commercial and religious domination to the area. They were here to stay and this is when they named the area after their king, Louis XIV. Like many colonies across the Americas, French instituted chattel slavery. The first few thousand slaves were women and children from local tribes, first recorded in 1706. Thirteen years later... African slaves were brought in and established the transatlantic slave trade. By the 1750s, around 4,300 slaves were brought from the West, from West Africa. The capture and the sale of Native Americans continued until December 7, 1796, when, by decree, it became illegal. Since this new law didn't include Africans, slave, cra- slave trade continued to grow and thrive. With such a strong market in human trafficking, it's no wonder that the two largest revolts in American history happened in Louisiana. The first revolt was known as the Point Coupe Conspiracy. On May 5, 1795, 57 slaves and three local white men, white men caused an insurrection on local plantations. They burned several to the ground. While searching one of the houses of the white men involved, a slave owner found a copy of the Rey du Limpo, which is primarily a book about taxes. Incidentally, it also had some passages that argued about inalienable rights of all men. Let's say the slave-owning majority just really didn't take very kindly to that. All of the men were tried. The three white men were deported to hard labor camps in Havana, Cuba. With such a strong market in human trafficking, it's no wonder that the two largest revolts in American history happened in Louisiana. The first revolt was known as Point Coupe Conspiracy. On May 5th, 1795, 57 slaves and three local white men caused an insurrection on local plantations. They burned several to the ground. While searching one of the houses of the white men involved, a slave owner found a copy of a Ray du Limpo, which is basically a book about taxes. Incidentally, it had some passages that argued about the inalienable rights of all men. Let's say the slave-owning majority didn't really take very kindly to that. All of the men were tried. The three white men were deported to hard labor camps for six years each in Havana, Cuba. The slaves didn't fare quite so well. Thirty-one were flogged and sentenced to hard labor. The remaining 23 were hung and decapitated. Their heads posted on spikes as a warning to the other slaves. Another 16 years later, in early 1811, Louisiana was the home of the largest slave revolt in American history, about 30 miles outside of New Orleans. There was another revolt, the Haitian Revolution, which led to the abolition of slavery on that island, which precipitated many Frenchmen, from that area to bring their slaves to the mainland and settle in Louisiana. Finding the conditions on the sugar plantations even worse than the conditions in Haiti, the slaves rose up and rebelled against their landowners. The revolt ended in a deadly witch hunt. Militia and soldiers hunted down men of color and dragged them to their execution. Like the previous slaughtered slaves, their heads were also put on pikes. I think that these are atrocities that we men have served on others is completely inexcusable. I hate that this is part of our history, though I also think it is what it is. I think it's important that we recognize it and move forward and away from it. Winston Churchill said, remember the past, remember the past or be condemned to repeat it. Slavery is a serious issue no matter what the circumstance. I'm not making light of it when I say that the conditions of this time were better in Louisiana than many other places in the Deep South. This was due to a law introduced by the Spaniards called Cortesian. This allowed slaves to buy their freedom and that of other slaves. Now, it didn't guarantee them wages. After all, they were slaves, so you can imagine how difficult it would be to come by the money you needed to buy your freedom. Plus, slave owners would set high prices to discourage slaves from uh, obtaining these dreams this law also forbade owners from flogging slaves more than a set number of times i have no idea why that's so hard to say and also there's no way of knowing if this rule was rule was ever followed or enforced this all changed when louisiana became an official territory of the united states with the louisiana purchase in 1803 With the purchase, the area saw an influx of Protestants. They felt slave owners treated their slaves just a little too well. Louisiana continued to import slaves from Africa until 1807 when the territory placed a ban on the practice. Instead of a decrease in the number of slaves, the population actually increased. Slave owners in the Upper South filled the demand with new domestic slave trade much of which was because of this new invention, the cotton gin. With so much focus on cotton and sugar, cane plantations' success were really riding on this cheap labor. Louisiana decided to succeed from the Union and become a part of the Confederate States of America in January 1861. Still, the common populace, I don't know if that's an oxymoron or not, common populace, The populace strongly supported the Union, and the state fell back to federal troops uh, one short year later, in April of 1862. The following years were known as the Reconstruction Era. Newly freed men were able to make advances toward family stability, education, and earning a living. Equal rights were far in the future, though this was a start. Not all of it was peaches and cream. Hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan were formed. Now let me make a side note here. I'm a proud southern man. My family has been in West Tennessee and the surrounding area ever since Adam wooed Eve. Slavery is wrong and there's nothing we can do about the past. Let's leave it there and live in peace. That's my prayer. Now back to Louisiana. White supremacy groups like the White League were vicious They lynched and killed a large number of black men. They also terrorized and killed black supporters, including liberal politicians and even the family of a state senator who witnessed a multiple murder. State leaders made it even tougher by making voting requirements tied to literacy tests and charging poll tax. In 1896, when the literacy law passed, there were around 130 black voters in Louisiana. Two short years later, that number was around 5,300. By 1900, that number was 730 black men registered to vote. The tensions erupted into violence in the July of that year. In a mad rush to find a cop killer, Robert Charles, who was a black man, white supremacists ravaged the city. They burned two black schools to the ground and seriously injured over 50 members of the black community. Another 28 more died. Those events and those conditions led to the great migration of Louisiana. With them, these descendants of African forefathers took the knowledge passed from generation on, voodoo. Close your eyes. Listen. As the witching hour comes, you can hear the beat of the drums. Throbbing thrumps pierce the heavy, fog-laden air. Chants drift in and out. in a distance. Slowly, the sense of a burning fire, gumbo, and faint sweat reach you. The world seems to wrap around you, slipping toward the drums. You see the fire burning. Shadows dance around casting weird and eerie shapes. The noises fade and the dancing halts. The voodoo queen rises to her feet. The flames reflecting off her skin. You can feel The power emanate from her. See her as she calls for the final ingredients of her devil's stew. It could be a chicken. It could be a cat. Or a mysterious herb. Or maybe even a child. That's how many people see voodoo when they imagine it. Charms and evil potions. Dark secrets and sacrifices. The fact is, the voodoo queen herself, Marie Laveau, a lot to build this grand idea most of us have about the religion she was born free mixed ancestry of african native american and french she married when she was 18 to jacques paris who promptly disappeared two years later her two daughters as well she soon began a domestic partnership with a noble frenchman french nobleman that yielded seven children over their relationship marie also opened a beauty parlor that catered to the New Orleans elite. She offered voodoo rituals for a price and made house calls as needed. Think of the trove of knowledge that was at her privy. Her best source, the slaves that worked in the houses, helped her sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not. She was known to have a heavy hand when she needed to. But it was no wonder she seemed able to divine personal details right out of thin air. These wealthy of New Orleans not only wanted herbs and remedies, they wanted guidance, and they wanted to know the future. She gave them what they paid for. Even after death, she appeared to live on and possibly even grow stronger. It was said that she had made a deal with a voodoo deity, Papa Legba, for immortal life. In reality, Her daughter, by the same name, continued to make public appearances and performances as the first Madame Laveau. That's pretty good. By the turn of the 20th century, voodoo as a whole had almost completely been suppressed by the American legal system, public opinion, and pressure from the Protestant right. All of the notable powerful and charismatic priests and priestesses were dead, and there was no one stepping into their shoes. Under combined pressures I mentioned, the natives of New Orleans that had grown up with Voodoo were converted to Christian Protestant. Now that's a word, Protestantism. Thank you. Many of them denounced their religion and compared it to devil worship. Those that continued practicing Voodoo combined it with Catholicism and Spiritualism. It was a new age for this old way of worship. By the 1960s, there was a full-on revival. Voodoo was specifically identified with Louisiana and normally with New Orleans. Today, it's more of a source of entertainment than anything else. Shops sell voodoo dolls, incense, herbs, and even blessed chicken feet. Visit New Orleans and it's easy to find a walking tour. I highly suggest the Cemetery No. 2 tour, which takes you by Marie's grave. Even today, she's affecting people with her brand of voodoo. It is believed that if you mark an X on her tomb, turn around three times and scream your wish into the air, the voodoo queen will answer it. Once granted, you're supposed to return and circle your X. I can tell you from personal observation, there's a whole lot of Xs, and very few of them are circled. A lot of New Orleans... A lot of New Orleans believe in the African proverb, cry at birth and laugh at death. I think I understand that. When we are born, we have a life of ups and downs, challenges and tribulations all ahead of us. When we die, we're free from strife. This is the basis for the jazz funeral. I think if you have the opportunity, you should really have the experience of being part of it. It's exciting and it's really kind of ethereal. You see, jazz is an important part of New Orleans in its history. It is influenced in this area by French marching, French marching cadences. Think about that: the music that's popular is influenced by marching cadences. That that just totally got my attention to, in the beginning when I started reading about this. But it also has a lot of depth and history in African tribal rights songs. As funny of a combination as that sounds, the music will sweep you to your feet in a New York second. Or maybe I should say a New Orleans second. I don't know. Jazz funerals are bright, vibrant affairs that celebrate life through jazz music, celebrating the life of the deceased and connecting with those that are still here for the struggle. Almost all funerals follow the same formula. A family hires a private jazz band to accompany the family on a final walk to the funeral service. This is called the first line. The first line also includes a parade master, possibly a horse-drawn carriage for the deceased, and the horses are dressed with headdresses and bells. Along the way, the procession will grow as non-family members onlookers, even complete strangers fall into a procession behind the family. This is called the second line. Now side note here. Also, that's the name of one of my favorite Memphis restaurants. Tell Kelly English High for me if you visit. He is an incredible chef. Now back to New Orleans and their second line. So anyone can join and take part of the celebration regardless of class, race, and background with one rule you don't cross the first line as you walk in your dance you walk or dance your way to church or to the gravesite you'll notice that the tempo changes as the procession gets closer normally the band will cut into this high energy traditional song like maybe didn't he ramble or one that you've probably heard before when the saints go marching in While a lot of people believe in voodoo, participate in jazz funerals, there are a lot more traditional voodoo funerals. For instance, Haitian voodoo funerals go on for days. Some of the others even include a ritual last bath for the dead. Regardless of the background of the voodoo believers, one thing remains constant. They believe when a person dies, that person's spirit goes beneath the waters. I'll leave that for your interpretation. With all this partying and celebration going on, you can bet the attendees are dying to eat, and man, they have some good eats. There are always the crowd-pleasers like gumbo and jambalaya. Etouffee and po'boy sandwiches are a couple of the musts that I hope that you find when you take your New Orleans culinary tour. During the celebrations, the food's laid out in this potluck style, and... There's a lot of sides like potato salads and cold slaw and greens. It's down, home, it's down home cooking on steroids. That's the best way for me to tell you. And you should know that there is a stiff but friendly competition between the cooks. Because you know if you're down south, your Aunt May and your grandmother, if they're both making slaw, one's going to say they're better than the other. So come hungry and be ready to party when you visit. Speaking of good eats, let me tell you about this week's recipe. I'm making oysters Rockefeller. Now, like every week, I'm presenting a dish in the spirit of the original, and something that I expect that the average cook can duplicate. You see, when I began to be known for my cooking, I made it my expressed desire to inspire more men to cook. I believe when men cook, they're more, more engaged with their families, stronger families, make stronger communities, and ultimately a better world. To that end, I hope this recipe inspires you to try something new. Oysters Rockefeller was introduced into the American society through a New Orleans iconic restaurant in Tones back in 1899. That recipe is still a closely guarded secret. I think that they used watercress instead of spinach. Spinach is generally pretty easy to find, so that's what I'm using. There are many other variations, including this flavored licorice, spice, or cordial. I'm not going that route. I'm also replacing onion with bell pepper and adding some good mozzarella creaminess. To get started, we're going to be using three dozen fresh shucked oysters. Put the oysters to the side. Make sure to also set aside the shells for later using the recipe. Two cups of baby spinach, four cloves of minced garlic, one red, red bell pepper chopped into small pieces, a half cup of regular breadcrumbs, a half cup of unsalted butter, a cup of heavy cream, and a cup of shredded Parmesan, 36 whole mozzarella pearls, some salt and some pepper. Preheat your oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. While it's warming up, melt the butter in a skillet over some medium heat. Add in the garlic and the bell pepper and let it sizzle until you can smell that warmth and deliciousness. We're just really trying to soften up the vegetables some here. Then add your cream and let it heat up. Stir frequently and watch it because you certainly don't want your cream to scorch. Add in the spinach and cook the mixture until done. when I say until done, we're saying until the spinach is wilted. Add your salt and pepper to taste. Now it's time to build the dish. Place your best 36 half oyster shells on a baking sheet inside up. Put a raw oyster in each, followed by a healthy pinch of the spinach mixture. Sprinkle with breadcrumbs, then Parmesan, top with a mozzarella pearl, Place the baking tray in the oven for 20 minutes or until the cheesy is completely, until the cheesy, ha, I guess that's me, the cheesy. So place the baking tray in the oven for 20 minutes or until the cheese is completely melted. Once done, dig in. Now be careful because those oysters are going to be hot. I've been your host, Scott Parrott. (laughs) I think I did this before. I just stumble all over trying to get out of this thing. I've been your host, Scott Parrish. I want to say thank you to every one of our listeners. We can't continue to grow and bring new material without your support. We have been blessed to be carried on most major podcast platforms. So please listen, like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Stay tuned for new episodes. And until next time, stay lively.